A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. Hi, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm your host, Yishan. Hopefully, you all have a great start of the year. As you may know, if you've been listening to my podcast, I took a two-week break from podcasting and clinical work to really try to do self-care and get myself recharged for the new year. So for the past two weeks, our podcast replayed some classic episode I had with Dr. Barwick and Dr. Winter. Hopefully, you enjoyed them. So now I'm back fully recharged and ready for the new year. So today we will talk about the discrepancy within sleep perception. You may have this experience. Sometimes we slept the whole night. In the morning, we thought we slept poorly. But if we were to measure our sleep using some kind of device, the reality may be we slept pretty well, but we think we slept poorly. Why there's such gap? So today we have our guest, Dr. Spencer Dunson from Better Sleep Bloomington. He is a clinical psychologist specializing in behavioral sleep medicine, and he has done a lot of great research in this area. So let's hear from him together why this kind of gap exists and what we can do about it. Hey, Dr. Downson, welcome to Deep Into Sleep. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you today because I know you've been in the field of behavioral sleep medicine for quite a while and did a lot of great research and clinical work in this field. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself to our audience just in case some audience don't uh, know you very much? Sure, yeah. So, um yeah, I guess I might start with just saying that uh, I got my start in the field of sleep research, um, working as a, as a research assistant. I didn't know anything about sleep. I ended up working at a sleep lab at University of Michigan for about four years. Um, did my PhD at University of Arizona with uh, Dick Bootson and then um, a postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University working uh, mostly with uh, Dr. Jason Ong. Uh, and now I am in independent practice in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Cool. So what got you into this field originally? Did you carry a certain questions you want to answer about sleep or you just uh, step into it without knowing, without having an idea? Yeah. So where I got connected with the very first sleep I worked with was that I knew that I loved research. I knew that I loved psychology. Um, I had graduated college and just started applying for research jobs anywhere that was hiring. So the first place to call me back was a sleep lab and uh, ended up being a terrific fit, really a lot of fun. I knew I loved research and always had it in my head that I would go and go to graduate school. Um, and sure enough, I did, but not surprisingly, spending nights uh, watching people sleep, monitoring their brain activity, talking to them in the morning. One of the things that was really interesting to me was a lot of times what I saw and what people told me didn't match up. Ah. I even had an experience where, um, and people are on sleep schedules, they're okay, this is the time that you go to bed. And so we would wire people up and sometimes there would be a little bit of time before lights out. Um, and I just remember a case where 
I, I looked over at the screen and this uh, one of the participants in our research study looked like he was um, he, he was sleeping. He was in stage two for sure. I went over to the room and said, it's not time to fall asleep yet. And he was like, I wasn't asleep. I was like, hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, also seeing folks taking, you know, a normal amount of time to fall asleep. Um, that was always kind of a thing. If you're there, you're the tech running the study. Once people actually fall asleep and like actually really fall asleep, then you can kind of relax a little bit and realize, okay, you know, they're probably not, they're, they're probably doing fine. They're not, they don't like need anything from me. Like they're just sleeping and then you can kind of relax a little bit. So you're always kind of paying attention to that to an extent. So having folks fall asleep in kind of a normal amount of time and in the morning, you know, the, one of the standard questions is how long did it take for you to fall asleep? And somebody might say, you know, really long time. And we never really even discussed it, just, you know, just collecting the information at that point. But that really kind of got those experiences really got me thinking like, okay, what is going on here? Um, what is going on with this mismatch? Um, and that's what really led me. Um, that was a question that hooked with me to my um, graduate school experience and ended up exploring there. That's very interesting. Um, so this actually is something not only you observe, I even I don't work in the sleep lab, but I also observe quite a lot. So I've also carried this question too. And uh, why? Because there I heard a lot of people they are actually sleeping, but they think they are not. So a lot of people complain, well, I have insomnia, I haven't slept for days. But if you really have some kind of tracker or they sleep in a sleep lab, they are actually sleeping five or six or even more hours. Does not match what they think they are getting, right? So why people are doing that? Why that is happening? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and the answer is pretty complicated, really. And it kind of... You know, somebody might say, oh, I haven't slept for days or for weeks. Um, and that would just sort of, you would think, oh, well, if somebody told me they hadn't thing to eat or drink for days or weeks, <laughs> I would like, well, you would be dead. Um, right. And if you hadn't slept, at, if you really hadn't slept at all for, for days or, you know, well, probably, yeah, for days or weeks, you would be, you would really be suffering. You would be really in ill health and just really dragging. And, you know, if you talk to somebody a little bit more, um, they'll they'll tell you that oh well I got you know a couple you know a little bit or I was in and out or didn't feel like I was getting real sleep so that initial I haven't slept is usually there's a little bit more there um, and as you kind of continue kind of delving in a lot of times folks will tell you a little bit more about how they're actually getting some sleep but it's just really bad or or something along those lines. But that's just kind of in, in conversation with somebody in kind of, you know, a sort of a clinical interview or, or that sort of situation. But some of the research that's been done, um, and a lot of it's stuff that was been that was done like the 70s and 80s and since then as well. But um, stuff that's pretty, pretty early on when people are really kind of trying to get at this question of what's going on with people kind of not knowing if they're awake or asleep was done where they would bring people into the lab and see... Um, wake them up or just wake them up when they were already awake, uh, kind of go through the same procedure and ask, you know, when I, when I just called you over the intercom, for example, um, were you awake or asleep? And um, folks with insomnia are more likely to say that I was awake, even if, you know, maybe they didn't respond until the second or third time that they were called. So the behavior, even the behavioral response is like you were asleep. The EEG looked like you were asleep. But then you ask the person and their experience in that moment is I was awake. 
So that's kind of another piece that's, that's sort of interesting. And I think what the way to, to frame this phenomenon is, um, which is not the most popular term, um, and it's a little bit newer term, is sleep discrepancy. So there's a discrepancy between two, between two different, different measurements. So it's not that one is wrong and one is right, uh, but rather that, there, that there's a difference and that difference tells us something. You know, one thing, when things don't match up, it's, it's for a reason. Part of that can be, you know, being very distressed and kind of communicating that. You say, you know, things are really terrible. Um, and sort of that example I was giving before, you know, I haven't slept for days or weeks, but you can get a little bit of sleep. Um, it can be also sort of uh, hindsight bias, you know, where, you know, you know, you kind of think back over the last month and how, how are you sleeping? Oh, I was sleeping terrible, but then you give somebody a sleep diary and they're tracking it every night and they, you find that they have some better nights in there. Maybe things aren't, you know, perfect in the way they want them to be, especially at the beginning of treatment, but they're, it's better than perhaps, you know, kind of when you're, when you're forced to think backwards, what was that like? And it's when you're already feeling badly, it's hard to remember the good stuff. But then uh, yet another piece is, is that it looks like, um, there is increased brain activity in folks with insomnia while they're asleep. Some really nice studies of this. Some just analyzing um, the EEG and seeing more high frequency activity, which um, often tends to reflect, um, you know, sort of sort of ongoing cognitive activity. So you might still have some amount of consciousness that's persisting into sleep. And then there was a group at Pitt that did um, PET imaging. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with with those studies. Uh, Eric Knopfinger um, headed up that project and. It's pretty amazing that people sleeping in the lab with a catheter, like an IV, in, and once they were asleep and in stable stage two sleep, they injected them with a uh, radio tracer that then would uptake into areas that were more active in the brain. It was a radio labeled glucose. So at parts of your brain, they're more active or using more glucose. And then the glucose that's radio labeled goes there and then they wake them up take them over the PET scanner and you could see while they were asleep, that's when the uptake happened. Now they're awake. It doesn't really matter. You just see where that glucose had gone when they were asleep and seeing that there was um, increased metabolic activity um, in the frontal cortex and also in um, nodes of the default mode network, which is you know related with self-referential processing. So showing that indeed the folks who, who had insomnia, especially the folks who had more of that discrepancy, actually their brains were more active during sleep. So, so they're not wrong. Um, and so I think that's kind of one of the kind of getting on the same page. It's not about being right or wrong. So there's, there's a difference, but it's also, it's also something that can be improved. That's kind of one of the other nice things is even, even folks who have a bit of discrepancy, they can, they can respond to treatment and they, they can, they can get better sleep. Yeah, that's very important, I think, for people to know and understand. Sounds like there are quite a lot going on in our body, in our brain while we are sleeping. And no matter whether we have insomnia or not, but if we do have insomnia, possibly there's more stuff going on. But still, sounds like part of that is people don't quite understand what is normal sleep, what is right, what is not right. There's a lot of interpretations. I know a lot of... um 
Asian clients I see, they would say, well, I'm not quite in deep sleep. If I, I remember my dream, if, you know, I feel like I'm in and out, I'm not quite sure. Am I really sleeping or awake? I think I'm sleeping poorly because it's not so-called deep sleep. I supposed to, they feel like they're supposed to have this deep sleep without noticing anything the whole night. So I think there are a lot of uh, ideas like that people carry. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, yeah, I, I hear that a lot from clients. Like I, when you talk to them a little bit more, oh, I, I'm not sure I was in and out. When you're in and out, it feels like the whole time was being awake. I mean, that's just, right. that's just, that's pretty normal. Uh, and then, yeah, some people feel like, yeah, if I remember nothing that was deep sleep, other people who talk to them, it's like, oh, well, I would know I was sleeping well if I remembered my dreams. I'm not dreaming. But dream recall is pretty variable. I mean, not everybody remembers their dreams. It kind of depends on what stage of sleep you wake up out of and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, with the dreaming thing, you know, the ideas that people come to can, can really be kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, when people ask you those questions, how do you um, answer them? And do they like buy in what, what you tell them? Like the, the research, if you tell them all the research, do they like, oh, I'm wrong, you're right. I understand that now. Do people like very easily to be convinced and then drop their anxiety? Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a complicated message. It's a little bit almost sort of contradictory. There's kind of a, um, a dialectic or kind of fusion between these two separate ideas where the good news is you're probably getting more sleep than you feel like you should be getting. But on the other hand, it's not the kind of sleep that you wish you were getting. So kind of that good news, bad news sort of thing, like, and, and not, not dismissing people's concerns because their experiences, uh, somebody's experience is not something you can really argue with and kind of being able to get, I found that pretty much everybody I've worked with, we're able to, when this is an issue, uh, we're able to get on the same page about, okay, you're actually probably in and out. That's why, you know, I believe that it feels like that. So really kind of coming alongside rather than trying to convince somebody of something that doesn't really fit with their experience, but kind of coming to a common understanding and then being able to work from there, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, instructions like, oh, if you're awake for a long time, get out of bed. And well, I don't know if I was awake or asleep. Okay, then what do you, what do, you do about that? And kind of coming up with a plan that is actually something that can work for somebody who really isn't very sure about when they're awake or asleep. And that even that process can be a learning experience of like, okay, um, now I'm paying more attention to when I'm awake or asleep than, you know, putting into practice a behavioral intervention that um, that's sort of based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really good to know. And I like your approach to really validate people's experience, acknowledge they are suffering and they are experiencing this and they are not comfortable, but at the same time, help them understand the mechanism, the science behind it. And uh, sounds like, you know, they may have a not so good experience of sleep at night, it possibly not this type of the good sleep quality they want to guide. It's not ideal, but it's also not the the end of the world and there's always some hope there there's some room to to work on there what we just talked about was how you get into the field you research quite a lot in those which is awesome which is very important topic for people to to understand and sounds quite complicated and then uh, what are some current research projects you're doing uh one of the most recent ones that um 
It was actually just published. It was one where we were developing a new treatment. This was something that was led by uh, Jason Ong, who was my postdoctoral mentor, and I was on as a co-investigator. The idea was to develop a treatment for folks who have uh, hypersomnia, so either narcolepsy uh, type 1, narcolepsy type 2, or idiopathic hypersomnia. That's what we were focusing on in the study. It's really kind of a big shift in terms of mindset to approach as a behavioral sleep medicine expert. And that more, the majority of our work tends to be in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a treatment that works really well, works better than sleeping pills. You know, people get off sleeping pills, and the only treatment that they need is CBTI, and it's very, it's just very quick. Um, people come in, they get better, and they go and live their life. And usually, you know, that, you know, that's the idea is is that people no longer have to even think about having insomnia. You know, they have. They may be not perfect sleepers, but you know they sleep they sleep well enough and they function pretty well during the day, and it's really not a big deal anymore. Somebody with a hypersomnia disorder, though, I mean that's it's a medical disorder. Um, it's something that really still does require at this point some sort of medication, usually something like a stimulant medication during the daytime, um, maybe maybe something at night as well. It sort of depends on the specific problem and the individual. And well, one of the big issues with this is that physicians in general are really not well educated on being able to recognize these disorders, which is, um, again, it's it's really understandable. You know, a primary care physician has to be able to understand all of, of medicine. <laughs> um, and they maybe get half an hour on, on sleep during their training. Um, and a lot of that is focused on sleep disordered breathing, which makes sense because that's, that's the most common. That and insomnia, those are the two most common sleep disorders. And so primary care is really on the front lines of um, treating a lot of insomnia and trying to identify folks who have sleep apnea and for sleep apnea, they have to refer them on. But what that means is that a lot of folks who have hypersomnia disorders don't get picked up. They don't have that disorder identified very quickly at all. So they end up being diagnosed maybe with uh, with depression or uh, told nothing is wrong or um, other sorts of explanations that aren't really a good fit. And then the treatments don't work for those problems because that's because it's not what's going on for them. And it can end up having a profound effect on people's lives. A, just by the effect of the symptoms is pretty disabling. And then people then very understandably personalize these symptoms. And it's, okay, well, maybe I'm just a lazy person. And maybe they're getting that message explicitly from, from people in their lives. Um, you know, you're sleeping all the time. You must be lazy. You know, why aren't you getting up? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? You're just lazy. And so for a little while, you can maybe see that, okay, well, maybe you kind of withstand that for a little bit. But when you don't have any other explanations, this is going on for years. The average time for a person with narcolepsy to get diagnosed is about seven years. Mm -hmm. um, it's a long time to be living with um, an undiagnosed, untreated, um, and pretty serious sleep problem. Uh, and then that really just changes, um, can change people's uh, self-image how they see themselves, their self-esteem. Um, I mean, people have to change their plans pretty substantially in terms of maybe they drop out of school, maybe they're not able to work, maybe they're not able to, you know, maintain relationships. Um, and this all becomes very sort of personal. It's about who I am, not about this problem. So, so I mean, the good news is, is that people do, you know, eventually, you know, get, get diagnosed, they get an answer and they can, okay, well, it's not me, but You've already had now years and years of kind of 
repetition of this idea that it's me, it's something about me that's, you know, that makes that I'm a bad person or I'm lazy. Getting a different answer is is helpful, but it's not really panacea. It doesn't make a person think, oh, well, oh, no, everything's all good. Um, I feel great about myself. Because also, the, you know, that period of not being diagnosed and or, or treated or, you know, having their symptoms totally unmanaged um, can, ha- can have real effects on a person's life that they're now having to live with. Right, right. Yeah, what you just mentioned totally um, fits some other guests I, invi- uh, I invited on the show earlier. They themselves has either narcolepsy or I've seen people in my clinical setting, right, who has sounds like very obvious this kind of hypersomnia symptom, but they never got diagnosed. But instead, they were diagnosed with psychiatric disorders. And of course, the treatment did not work. And they have to consult different professionals. And eventually, after years, led to some kind of direction, oh, maybe we should do a certain type of testing, uh, a sleep study, and other things to really figure this out to, to get a diagnosed. But they also definitely mentioned the same thing to me that after the diagnosis, it's it's still it's kind of like the start. Finally, they are not walking in the darkness. They, there's a explanation uh, for their symptoms, their struggles. But then what? So a lot of people ask me, uh, are themselves been wondering is that only medication can help them, right? Can is there any behavioral strategy or what psychologists can do? to them. Is there anything? So um, that's what I want to hear from you more. Like, is that only medication? The only answer for the rest of their life? What else can we do? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of the question. Because now you, if a person has gotten a diagnosis, that means they've actually been able to meet and be evaluated by somebody who is an expert in sleep disorders. So now they have somebody, okay, now this person understands my sleep problem, but this person doesn't really have the time to spend helping me with the sort of the broader context of living with hypersomnia. So, so there's sorts of problems that are more in the psychosocial domain. So, so their sleep doctor can help with this sort of managing their sleep, sleep disorder with medications and managing their, their symptoms, which is really kind of um, also kind of a struggle where a lot of times the medications are, are helpful, but they don't totally sort of bring a person back to, you know, what we consider to be normal or, you know, what their, what their ideal would be. And then sometimes some of the medications have side effects that can be, they can limit, you know, their ability to, um, to use the, to engage with those treatments. So that's kind of its own challenge. And so, okay, well, what about all these, you know, sort of broader effects on my life? And so the sort of obvious answer to that is, is to see, see a therapist. Unfortunately, you know, the majority of therapists have, you know, similar to like what I was saying about primary care, they don't get a lot of training in sleep disorders. And so that becomes sort of issue of, um, well, my sleep doctor, you know, understands my sleep disorder, but, you know, can't help me with the psychosocial issues. And then, you know, I talk to a therapist, they don't know anything about my sleep disorder. So they think that it's, you know, maybe they think it's depression or something like that, that it's, that's, that is only that. Um, and that becomes um, kind of a tough spot to be in. That was really kind of the, um, what led to um, developing this treatment. So it's sort of, has a number of different pieces included um, and 
one of the things that was interesting too is that we tried doing it uh, as individual treatment and also um, doing it in groups. And doing it in groups, a lot of these folks have not met another person who has the same sort of problem, not met another person with hypersomnia. And so there are some organizations like um, Narcolepsy Network, for example, where people can go and they can meet other people who with narcolepsy in that case. It's a, another sort of revelation where it's like, oh, there are other people who are like me, which can be helpful. But then there are, there are other pieces like um, just generally getting, just from the start, just getting better education on what hypersomnia is. Even if you have that opportunity to get a diagnosis that usually is um, can be a pretty brief visit and maybe doesn't answer all the questions or provide all the information or it's hard to take in. So that's, that's I mean, that's one of the sort of very simple, concrete things that, that we can you know talk about to kind of help kind of better understand what's going on again, with some of the sort of concrete stuff is kind of working on issues around managing uh, sleep and wake and time. So like with CBDI, we focus a lot on the sleep diary, which is very, which is, you know, exclusively focused on the nighttime. But for a fo- person with hypersomnia, we're not really as concerned with, with the nighttime. Um, although, you know, some folks, especially folks with uh, narcolepsy type one can have pretty disrupted uh, sleep at night. What we're focused on primarily is um, is what people are doing during the daytime, and getting a picture of where that time is going, and are there ways to, for example, build in structured naps or breaks um, that may or may not be helpful. Some folks, especially folks with like night type one narcolepsy, can find a brief nap to be very restoring. Whereas some other folks who maybe have type two narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia, if they take a nap they're not getting back up. They can have pretty substantial, especially folks with IH, they can have pretty substantial sleep inertia when they wake up and it's very disoriented and very confusing. It feels really bad. But being able to take a look at, at things that way, um, one of the things we talk about is the, is the Pomodoro technique. So you know, taking a whole day and kind of break it in, into, into pieces as something that's, you know, a way to make the most out of the, the energy that, that you do have that's kind of the, the more sort of concrete part, but in a sort of complementary fashion, one of the things we look at is, you know, what 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 are the things a person is uh, doing with their with their daytime? These different activities and things that people are engaged in are these things that are are nurturing that build their energy, or are they things that are, are just very depleting? And really taking a look at that balance, because even a person who has hypersomnia you add on a bunch of really depleting activities that makes the problem worse. It doesn't mean that, you know, that's that your sleep disorder is the only thing that can make you feel more energized or more depleted or, or good or bad. There are other things, there are other layers that are on top of that, that, that are worth taking a look at things like, like depression symptoms. So, and addressing those with things like behavioral activation. So doing things that are meaningful, that make you feel either just good or just fun, they're just pleasurable, or you know, give you that sense of meaning, of purpose, of, of accomplishment that's kind of at that other level that can you know help you feel more like the person you want to be can be helpful as well. Mm-hmm. I really love this approach. Feels like they combine a lot of a lot of psychological component in it and uh, also help with the medical team, like really a collaborative approach feels like. I know the psychoeducation piece is always important, even for people with insomnia. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure 
for hypersomnia, possibly more important, the patients and their family members possibly all need to know more about that. So we don't really talk about that as much. And people all know I cannot sleep, but people mm-hmm. don't know what that means if I, you know, have this hypersomnia uh, symptoms. And uh, I, I always think psychoeducation as something like if we know more about that, it's less scary. Mm-hmm. We possibly won't feel that much anxiety about it. And this um, association, social support piece, a lot of my previous guests also talk about that when they are diagnosed as narcolepsy themselves or other hypsomnia uh, symptoms, they they find this support groups, it's really helped them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they learn different strategies to manage that, like sounds like lifestyle shift right, can can be really important. It's part of the picture. And some of them even start telling their stories and organize this kind of support group themselves. That's what you mentioned, make life more meaningful and how to, how to find a way to still be optimistic and move mm-hmm. on with life. So yeah. I really love this approach you guys put in this treatment method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty, um, feel pretty good about it. People seem to like the treatment. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that was interesting was we did this, um, we did this last year. So, um, you know, I think all the treatment was delivered. I think all the treatment was delivered last year. So, so all, all, all pre-COVID, but we did everything by teleconference. So all the recruitment, all the treatment, all the screening, um, all of the um, assessment measures were collected online. And so, this allowed us to meet our recruitment goals really quickly, which is always often a challenge, but, um, right. but being able to recruit, not just from the Chicago area, but being able to recruit from the entire country was a big help. And also working with some of these organizations who are really, really see the need for, for something like this. And then they can then kind of reach out to their membership. And that was, that allowed us to get more, um, more people in. So, so that was helpful. And then folks who, who have a, you know a serious sleep disorder like like hypersomnia? You know, the ability to engage in uh, treatment or therapy from the home is just a, a huge help for folks. Yeah, especially after COVID, and I think mm-hmm. next year possibly a lot of people still gonna have to stay at home receiving whatever treatment. So this is perfect that you guys deliver that through telehealth platform mm-hmm. already. Yeah. Yeah. I was really, I didn't know how much of a preview was going to be of, of 2020, uh, but it ended up being a good experience um, in and of itself. And then also helpful for me personally to already have some comfort with kind of working in that way. Yeah. And then the people, the people, you know, they like the format, they like, you know, not having to go anywhere. Yeah. It's just kind of also, I feel like a better way to be able to put people together. Both narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia are relatively rare disorders. Not that nobody has them, but I think narcolepsy is about as common as multiple sclerosis and, you know, far less common than insomnia. So if you want to have a a treatment that's delivered in a group setting, um, it's nice to be able to have a larger pool to draw from. Yeah. To to bring people together uh, and people really like that. So yeah, it it, it was nice. And then we saw also, um, you know, improvements in, um, in depression symptoms. And the the thing that really stood out the most was, um, was self-efficacy. So it's just a general measure that we use. It was, you know, 
what's your sort of confidence in your ability to handle things in your life? Just really broad, just broadly defined, not what is your symptom of depression or anxiety or whatever, very, very specific, but do you feel like you have the ability to handle the things in your life and the things that come your way and problems that come up? Do you feel like you can handle those? And that's, that's where we saw the biggest, uh, biggest improvement, which to me, that feels really good because that feels like, okay, people feel like they're better able to manage your life. We're not looking for, we're not expecting for people's, you know, hypersomnia symptoms to change a lot um, because we're not directly treating those. We're more interested in, can we help people, you know, live their life and feel like they can, they can do that in a meaningful way. So that was nice to see. Yeah, great. So do you, in your own practice, do you deliver this kind of treatment to people like individually or in group format or both? Yeah, so my practice is still pretty early in terms of its, of its development and also happening in, you know, during COVID is, is a little bit um, kind of its own sort of challenge. So the majority of folks I've been working with are, have been, you know, like any other person who's doing behavioral sleep medicine have been folks with insomnia. And also just in terms of, you know, being able to get the word out there that um, that this is a resource that's, that's available, that actually even just the idea that insomnia can be treated with something other than a medication and that that's actually the first line treatment, that's kind of a thing that people don't always know. All that to say, everybody I've worked with so far has, has been individually. Um, that's one of the things that I think I don't think is ever going to go away is people either wanting or, or needing um, one-on-one treatment. So as we think about, you know, bigger scale issues about like how common insomnia is, how many millions of people have insomnia and how do we get them all treated in a way that's that's effective and, you know, giving them the first line treatment is a challenge. And, you know, even with as much work as is going on in terms of things like step care models, automated online or digital treatments, um, or moving to like group-based treatments or very brief treatments that can be delivered in primary care um, that have been shown to be effective. Um, at the end of the day, you know, effective in, in a research study doesn't mean that it's going to be effective for every single person who has the problem. True. Yeah, those digital online platform you mentioned, do you use any of them or do you recommend any of them to some patients? I think a lot of people still prefer this kind of one-on-one with a real professional to help them tailor the treatment. But I know there are other platforms, very standard, like different modules, right? Just go over that on your own pace and then you will be fine. There are also like trackers we can wear to monitor the sleep. So I'm wondering, do you use that um, in your practice or what's your view about them? I think there are some things out there that, that are really effective. And even before we had, you know, things that were digital online, we had we had books. We've had books for for decades that have really good information are written by experts in the field. Websites are nice because they're interactive and you can, I think, you know, input your inf- like sleep diary information, have it calculate things for you. Um, and maybe you give you a little bit in terms of personalized recommendations. But all these things require that you are very active and very engaged and really doing it yourself. So a lot of people that's great. They can totally take that on. They can do that. They can make it happen. It's like anything else. It's like taking on a a new diet or exercise program or something like that. Some people you can just Mm -hmm. say, here, read this book, read this pamphlet. Like this is your information and people can take that. And they're like, oh, this makes sense. I can totally do this. Other people are going to need a little bit more support 
or it won't make sense, or it might not be a good fit for them. And so it needs to, you know, having have a little bit more interaction from just a little bit to kind of a lot in terms of, you know, kind of use the analogy of like exercise or sports, having a coach who can say, okay, oh, actually you kind of need to tweak this. Like I understand how like the instruction said, said A, you did B, but it's not really like, I can see how you made that jump there, but you know, we kind of need to change a little bit of your approach in a way that's um, a book certainly can't do Um, a digital platform. um, It depends on the specific issue. Some may be able to handle it. All right. um, But others um, not really. And, you know, that's one of the things too, is, you know, really in any sort of uh, therapeutic context, you know, there's always been a, a emphasis in all of my training and all and on, um, on having a good rapport, having a good relationship with the individual and that being um, really pretty important for getting some amount of therapeutic change. If you're talking to somebody about doing something that's really hard or maybe doesn't make a lot of sense, it's a lot different when you're discussing doing something difficult with somebody who you who you trust and feel you have a good relationship with as opposed to some just you know website that you know it's not a person it's just automated it doesn't understand me hmm. so uh, a lot of that piece is, is, is missing um, I think that probably all of them that are, that are really out there are either they have research showing they work or they're based on you know solid principles it's not that they won't work it's just that change is hard and and having a person there with you, I think is going to make a difference for, for folks um, kind of always and forever and being able to personalize treatment, you know, using something like a case conceptualization model where you can take a look and see like, okay, these are the issues that are specific to this person. How am I going to approach that with this person that might be different than just a standard, you know, session by session protocol. And a lot of people do insomnia treatment that way. A lot of individual people do it that way. And that's, Again, it's something you can be effective, but you know, whenever you have a, a real person that's working one-on-one with you, you can always have the opportunity to ask more questions, to do personalized treatment, that, that sort of thing. So, so I, th- I think a lot of these things are going to be really helpful um, and get the word out about CBTI. Um, and I think, you know, you know, understandably, there's going to be a lot of folks who um, who benefit from it, but also a lot of folks who find that it just isn't the right thing for them. Um, that it's not able to help them in a way in the way that they need. So I think it's I think it's going to end up being win win mm. for patients and for people who are um, behavioral sleep medicine providers who are who are doing things like CBTI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I totally agree. I think even um, when I was in training, I shadowed my professor and sometime a day, there are going to be eight-ish insomnia patients, even though they all have symptoms of insomnia, possibly they all cannot fall asleep easily, but it's really different. The reason behind it, the, the sleep habits and what they've been trying, what they're doing, what the reasons it's so different from person mm-hmm. to person. So I think uh, standard um, resources are out there to help people more. People know about it. It's great. But this professional training, uh, like people like you provide this kind of service to be able to tailor it to mm-hmm. each person's need is equally important. So people, whoever is listening, you know, um, they can just really pick and choose what's the best for to fit their needs. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And also, these things are, are they, they vary in terms of their accessibility and cost. You know, probably the most expensive, least accessible thing is is working with somebody one on one, especially depending on your area. There might not be somebody who's in your area who has the expertise, or it might be something like um, in the Bay Area. I know a lot of folks who do CBDI uh, who aren't part of a healthcare system. Um, if they're independent, they charge a lot. They're very expensive. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had somebody reach out to me from from California who said, oh, well, you're in Indiana. Like, can you treat me? You know, your, your rates are lower. So, you know, a book is really cheap. There are good books that, you know, are, are solid. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the stuff in terms of insomnia treatment hasn't changed that much. And so you can buy a used book on Amazon. I have like 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're able to implement it, that's great. And then, you know, some of the, some of the web stuff, you know, it could be cheaper. It could be, you know, end up being, you know, the same cost of meeting with me once to do a whole treatment program. Yeah. Just one of the other things that, that, you know, sort of crossed my mind about this is that when you, when a problem comes up, like, like sleep discrepancy, when somebody comes in and their sleep diary shows that, you know, they haven't slept at all, or, you know, it's not even filled out or, or whatever, there's a question of what do you do with that? And I don't, I don't know how those systems handle that. Right. Maybe they have, maybe they have a great way. I'm not really sure, but for me, you know, I, that's a moment for me to like pause take a step back, have a conversation, think about how can we move forward? Because, you know, some of the treatment we approaches, you know, that we use are really, really need that data. But if a person's really not sure about what's going on, you need it, like that particular intervention isn't going to work. So I tend to go in another direction um, just because, you know, essentially one door is kind of closed. So trying to keep working on that is not something that's, that's likely to be helpful for the person who's there to get help. Right. That's such a good point. Yeah, that kind of one-on-one treatment can really help with that. And there's a lot of things without data, right? How a program can handle and how an expert can handle it. So um, at the end of the show, what's the, is there any last wisdom you want to share with all the audience if people are listening or really have some kind of sleep-related struggles or confused about that? Yeah, I think, you know, overall, you know, the message I'd like to send is that, is that if things are hard right now, they don't need to be, that, that there's hope that we have good treatments. Um, there are just so many different options. You know, if you're, if you're struggling, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. Hmm. So carry the hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, awesome. So, Dr. Johnson, if... Any of our listeners really want to uh, seek your professional help. They want to, you know, go to your practice to receive treatment from you. How can they find you? Uh, so my uh, my website for my practice is bettersleepbloomington.com. Um, that's where I'm based out of. It's uh, Bloomington, Indiana. I'm licensed in Indiana um, with the, but with the uh, the pandemic, there is a little bit of changes in terms of w- how states are allowing um, folks who are licensed in one state to practice in another. That varies state by state. Um, I'm also happy to, um, if folks are interested, to point them in, in helpful directions, even if I'm not able to see them personally. Great. So sounds like during the pandemic, if people from other states, they really want to get your service, they possibly can still contact you, see whether their license, their state can still get your help or you can help them link to other resources. Exactly. 
Cool. I will put your website and the published paper you talk about and other resources to the show notes. So people will be able to directly click through your website. Thank you very much for coming to the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's my conversation with Dr. Dunson. What did you learn? Leave me a message. Let me know. So if you want to find more about Dr. Dunson's private practice, you can go to his website at bettersleepbloomington.com. I will also put his information on my website at deepintosleep.co. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who is struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia.